Hey everybody, it's Nikki Nellis. Welcome to another episode of Industry Night with me here at the gorgeous Wine Lair, the private wine club next to the Ritz-Carlton in downtown Washington, D.C. Um, if you're new here, thanks so much for joining me. A bit of my background. Uh, you should be reading if you live in the D.C. metro area, the list areyouonit.com, the online e-zine that tells you absolutely everything that is happening in the food, wine, and hospitality scene. Of course, you tune in every Sunday to 1500 to Foodie and the Beast, now 14 years on air, D.C.'s only food and wine variety show. You should be following me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for all my good eats and travels. And lastly, here we are again, industry night. So you know the drill. First, I'm going to take you on all the fabulous eating I've been doing. And if you've been following me on Instagram, you have seen that I have been eating and drinking quite a lot. So... um. Around the corner from the wine lair is Riz, and you've probably been hearing a lot about her recently. She got nominated for a James Beard Award, and Tom Seatsma just wrote her up. And I was kind of like, I guess I'm going to have to check it out. And I do love Riz. It's been a minute, and I totally see what she's doing. It is a neighborhood restaurant. Honestly, I don't find the menu super inspiring, but it's not for me. It's really for people who live here. And if I lived downtown and just wanted a place where I could go for really good comfort food, it would definitely be at the bar at Rez. Uh, another place you could have found me at the bar was Seven Reasons. So that's Chef Enrique Lamardo. He has several restaurants now in the DC metro area, originally from Baltimore. And I have to tell you, it was a restaurant I wasn't planning on liking as much as I did. I thought the food was really excellent, really innovative, South American cuisine, an amazing wine list with some really unique um, South American wines, as well as really lovely hospitality. Now, I'm not a huge cocktail drinker, but I was sitting at the bar, so I watched a lot of cocktails get made, and they did look pretty fabulous. Um, we schlepped out on a really dreary, dreary night to Marshall, Virginia to go to Field of Maine. It is a favorite of my husband's and mine. If you have not been there, definitely put it on your list. Here's a little pro tip. You can go hiking in Sky Meadow and then have an early dinner there. There you go. Take that for the day. But, um, honestly, uh, Neil Wava is the, one of the owners. He is a pro at wines and the wines he poured us that night were just terrific. And the food is just yummy and they have these gorgeous sort of chateaus outside. So you can eat in the dining room or in a chateau. And, um, it's just a lovely way to spend the evening. Um, uh, you definitely want to get the fully loaded potatoes, which is like a deconstructed baked potato. It was, uh, crispy potatoes and lardons and scallions and creme fraiche. And I wish I had a bowl of it right now. It was so yummy. Okay. Uh, dinner at Riggs. If you have to do a party somewhere, like a birthday party or something fun, but you don't want to be in a private room, Cafe Riggs is totally the place to do it. Such an amazing vibe. Uh, seafood towers, Parker House rolls, and fries. Lots and lots of fries. Um, and then we went downstairs to Silver Lion, which is one of the hottest cocktail bars in the area right now. Of course, I have to mention my son, Sam, is one of the bartenders there. So it's very cool. Now, this is going to sound a little declassé, but they do these jello shots there. It's sort of what they're known for, but it's not like in a plastic cup. They're they're gorgeous. They're like put in like lemon skins and orange skins. And it's great. And obviously, their cocktail program, they were nominated. Uh, no, they won Best Bar in the Country uh, at New Orleans this year. Wow. So it's a very cool space. Check that out. 
another day, another drive out to Virginia, to Fredericksburg this time, which honestly, I'm not going to tell you all to go run out to Fredericksburg, but it's kind of got a funky, cool scene, lots of little shops and retail. Everything's independent, no Gap, no Starbucks. And we stopped at Joy Crump's uh, Food, F-O-O-D-E. We had brunch there, really delicious, like such a great Sunday morning vibes place. Um, and I've been there for dinner multiple times. Joy is just cooking some incredible food. So if you're heading down that way, it's worth checking out. Okay. I have a couple more places. So I stopped back in at La Vanguard because I really love it and sat at the bar yet again and had some snacks and their incredible bread, which is from, uh, pastisserie, uh, Christophe and, um, I'm sorry, boulangerie Christophe. Um, the food is great. Um, the wine list is terrific. The cocktails are also very good. The person I was with had cocktails. But then we went over to Bourbon Steak, and that's where all hell just totally broke loose. Uh, Chef Robert Curtis is just killing it there. And if you haven't been to Bourbon Steak and you think it's just steak, I mean, there is steak, and it's really good. But there is so much more there. Um, the food is just incredible. It's one of the best restaurants in the city that I don't think it gets the attention it deserves. And uh, Lamont Royale is this new funky place in Adams Morgan. It's calling itself a disco bar. There's lots of disco balls and they're doing uh, Quebec style cuisine. I'm not really sure. I don't know why they have to do Quebec style cuisine. I think the food is interesting. I just don't know if it goes with the bar. I kind of just feel like I'd rather go with my girls and hang out and dance to really fun like Prince and 80s and 90s music. So it was fun. Um, if you like poutine, then you're going to like the food. If you don't like poutine, then this one's not for you. Um, okay. Oh, and lastly, there were faux gras Twinkies. You all go check those out. You tell me what you think. I'm not going to give you my opinion first, but it's a thing and it's on Instagram. It's everywhere. Okay. Um, so there is a method to a lot of my eating madness and, um, especially over the last few weeks. So all I'm going to say to that is if you know, you know, and if you don't, then you should do your homework. Okay. So now on to today's show. Um, so as I talk about all my eating and eating and eating, um, I'm a little embarrassed just a tad because, as we have talked here before, access to healthy, nutritious food is not a God-given right to everybody. And a lot of food availability, um, a lot of the issues have to do with farming and farming practices, um, especially in this country. So I'm very excited to talk to Colin O'Neill. Um, he's the Director of Public Policy of, um, and Social Impact with Bowery Farming. You can see all the Bowery Farming products behind us. Um, and it's the largest vertical farming company in the U.S. Um, and I love what it's doing because it's reimagining how we eat. But not a lot of people know about it. So hi, Colin. How Hello. are you? It's nice to see you. Great to see you too. Okay, so... A little background on you so people know who you are and sort of how you got involved with a company like Bowery. Sure. So um, um, as you mentioned, Director of Public Policy and Social Impact for Bowery. We're the mm -hmm. largest indoor vertical farming company in the U.S. And really when I think about Bowery, we're on a mission to reinvent the fresh food supply chain to mm -hmm. be simpler, safer, and vastly more sustainable. Mm -hmm. I spent 15 years in the nonprofit world before I joined Bowery about a year ago, really focused on those three areas. Um, how do we protect consumers from food safety risks? 
How do we uh, re make reforms in the farm bill so that farmers use more sustainable practices? Mm -hmm. How do we uh, farm more sustainably so that we can reduce the impact of agriculture on the environment and reduce um, the impacts on human health, pollinators, and then frankly, how do we help feed more Americans healthy, nutritious food? Right. And so um, I've long been a, a personal, uh, had a personal uh, obsession, if you will, of indoor farming and dragged my wife on too many indoor farming tours. And she finally said, all right, you either need to start a farm right. or you need to go work for one of these okay, companies. So I'm just sort of curious, like where, where did your passion come from? Did you get a job and become passionate or were you... But sustainability, like all these buzzwords, climate change, I mean, yep. were these things you were inherently passionate about or was your first job you were like, oh, I mean, I got this job, but now I kind of like the message and now... Now it's who I am. Which came first? Uh, let's let's go way back. Okay, so let's. undergrad. We got time. Let's hear it. All right. Um, went to college in southern Wisconsin, mm -hmm. Beloit College, small art school, um, famously home to Indiana Jones or oh. the professor who inspired Indiana Jones. Oh, is that true? Yep. Uh, allegedly. Okay. Uh, Roy Ch Roy we'll Chapman Andrews is the uh, the former professor. You know, in the twenties of mm -hmm. anthropology. I always loved history. My dad was an artist, taught at the Corcoran College here in D.C., mm -hmm. huge history buff. Okay. And so growing up, really loved history, thought archaeology was going to be my thing. Hmm. Um, I was really fascinated with the um, uh, studying food and agriculture and climate change in the archaeological record, thinking, hey, if we just learn from the past, maybe we'll make smarter decisions in the present. Um, and I learned two things. One is... If you're an archaeologist, really amazing work, but you spend all of your time in the desert, you know, kind of brushing sifting. things. Uh -huh. It's a lot of sifting, no talking to people. Right. I, I learned actually I need to talk to people for a living. Well, I'm so glad you're here. It, me too. Doing yes. A lot of talking. Yes. Um, and then the second thing that I learned is that humans have a really bad track record from learning from the past. Mm. And, um, and so I thought if I want to influence today, where else could I look? And so. Uh, went down the environmental studies major route, okay. studied abroad in Australia, got a job interning for an organization in DC when I graduated that was focusing on sustainable agriculture. Mm. And, uh, that was really the first thing that, that awoken, um, I think the advocacy side of my brain. Okay. And, uh, so it, it that was my original kind of personal passion. Mm -hmm. And then it really became a professional passion. And, um, and again, spent 15 years in the nonprofit world working on multiple farm bills advocating for organic farming, sustainable farming, trying mm -hmm. to uh, reduce pesticide use, reduce the impact of agriculture on water and the environment. Well, I mean, so before we get into Bowery and vertical farming and yeah. what it is, because it is an answer to sort of the farming practice, the way farming is happening today. Yep. And it's not the first time I've discussed this on the show with, with different guests, but Big ag, big agriculture, you know, it's sort of this dirty word mm -hmm. to some, right. but not to everyone. Right. But the way farms and farming is done in this country today, it negates the small farmer. And um, there's all these, you know, seed issues and Monsanto. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, all, you know, there's all this big corporations. Right. It uses mass quantities of land. Obviously, there's water issues. Uh, lack of and other. Yeah. So there's all these issues because we're using a system that no longer, that never really worked. It just seemed efficient, yep. but not really the right way. Right. Which is a great point because I think 
inherently efficiency is a really good thing, right? but there can be negative outcomes depending on how you're applying it. Mm-hmm. And so I think when you look at agriculture, um, our farming practices simply put are just not sustainable how right. we're farming today. Mm-hmm. We've lost something like 40% of the arable land as a result of unsustainable farming practices over the past 50 years or so. So what does that mean? That means that areas that previously were farmed- Is it because farmed, they were farming poorly? Is it because they weren't, you know, like moving- Patches or what, you know, what was the issue? um, It's really comes down to intensity. So we were being, um, and this is very, this is broadly generalizing agriculture practices. Right. But um, using land far too intensively in a way that erodes topsoil, loses your water resources by Mm -hmm. depleting aquifers. Um, In some places, and this is true in, in the arid southwest, you know, we think of water as this infinite resource. And so we're literally farming the desert, you know, um, in, in the winter months, most of our fresh fruits and vegetables that are grown in America come from Yuma, Arizona. Mm. Dependent There's no on, water. It's dependent on the Colorado river right. basin and they, they drink last in line when mm. you look at water rights out West. And so from a food security standpoint, that's a huge risk. Right. And then there are other repercussions to our, um, our farming practices today. You know, we use about a billion pounds of pesticides every year on farmland just in the U.S. alone. Mm. Globally, it's about six billion. So one sixth of all pesticides that are applied on farm fields in the world are applied in the U.S. And can we talk about, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, yeah. but pesticides, why do we need the pesticides? What is it? Because didn't a lot of it have to do with like after World War II, there was all this ec- leftover uh, yes, the history munitions of, yeah. or whatever. Like I'm trying to remember where I read it, but what is it about these pesticides and why are they, why now are they used so much? Yeah. Um, and there are, uh, for all of your listeners, so many great books and articles that you can go down the rabbit hole about. Right. Agent Orange and its use today in, mm-hmm. um, in various ways in agriculture. A lot of our agrochemicals, whether they be synthetic fertilizers, but especially pesticides, have their roots in that, um, uh, you know, World War II era. Right, like munitions. Exactly. And stuff, right. Um, mm-hmm. and so, you know, when you think about it, Agent Orange was used as a defoliant during Vietnam. Right. And now we're using a variation on it to kill weeds in farm fields today. I mean, that's kind of scary. It is kind of scary. Right. And I think that when you think about you've got kids, I've got kids, um, exposure to toxic chemicals, whether it's in drinking water or in our food, is a big worry for me, but it's Mm -hmm. an even bigger worry for my kids. Sure. Well, because if you're putting it on the plants, it's seeping down to the soil, which means it's getting into the water. And yes, that's one route of exposure, but unfortunately, there are multiple routes of exposure. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things that tops the list of EWG's Dirty Dozen Guide to Pesticides and Produce every year is strawberries. And this is environmental. The Environmental Working working Group. group. Every year they put out a a guide to the uh, 12 uh, fruits and vegetables that, according to USDA's own data, have the highest residues of pesticides on them, oh, wow. even when, after they're washed or processed. So USDA, every year, it's an amazing data set. Okay. They buy all the fruits and vegetables at regular grocery stores. Mm-hmm. If it's something you'd wash before you'd eat, they wash it. Okay. And then they test it to see how many pesticides are on it. Whew. And the things that top the list are strawberries. Mm. Um, kale, strawberries, spinach, right? All the most nutritious, fra- but also fresh super things. fragile. 
Exactly. Strawberries are fragile. Yeah. Spinach is very fragile. Kale is, I mean, it's all perishable. They're perishable, but like I think of strawberries because of where they're grown. Yeah. You know, like legitimately on the East Coast. Yeah. Strawberries are an East Coast, I mean, are here in May. Yeah. Like for two weeks. Yeah. Yeah, And then then you're done. Yeah. But strawberries in the grocery store are there year round. Like we we live in this world where we think we should have access all year round. Yeah. the fact that strawberries tops the list does not surprise me. Yeah. And and so as a result of people wanting things all year round, mm-hmm. we're growing a lot more of them mm-hmm. and growing them in big monocultures. And so What as, is a monoculture? A monoculture is basically where you're growing one crop in uh, intensive large scale. Okay. So you're not doing multiple things which would provide like if you were doing strawberries, I'm making it up, string beans, you know, lettuce. Uh, cauliflower, if you had different rows of different items, you'd be giving different nutrients back to the soil. And you might not have the same pest pressure. Mm. But, you know, if you've got acres of strawberries, that's acres of a buffet for that one type of insect that loves to eat like, strawberries. Well, here. Yes. Right. And, um, and so this is, you know, um, this concept of monocultures made, uh, I think, was um, galvanized by Michael Pollan in his books. Sure. Um, and he famously said, nothing in nature exists as a monoculture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think fast forward to Bowery. Right. One of the really exciting things about what Bowery is doing, and honestly, one of the reasons why I joined, is um, they're really looking to solve a lot of those complex challenges that we see in agriculture, mm-hmm. especially in the fresh fruits and vegetables category. Okay. That, um, in fact, you can grow food all year round using significantly fewer resources, mm-hmm. no pesticides, and do it close to where people live all year round, so getting independent of, of weather and seasonality. Okay, so let's, so it's vertical farming. Yep. Let's explain the basis of it. Like, when did Bowery start? Like, let's get a little history on the company, and then let's talk about what Bowery is. So we were founded seven years ago. Okay. We've been on shelf since about 2016. Um, Bowery's the largest vertical farming company in the United States. When you think of indoor farming, um, otherwise called controlled environment agriculture, there are two big branches on the family tree. Okay. There's uh, high-tech greenhouses. So Mm -hmm. think of the Netherlands, which requires football fields worth of um, of space, but you're producing even more. Right. I went to a couple of those farms in um, Iceland. Uh-huh. Like yeah. The mushroom farms, but they were indoors. Yep. So they're indoors, but they're still reliant on the sun. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Bowery is vertical. So we're indoor vertical. Think warehouse scale. We stack our crops from floor to ceiling. Okay. Grow completely under LED lights that mirror and enhance the spectrum of the sun. And what that allows us to do is control every aspect. Mm-hmm. We're not uh, reliant on um, sun. We're not reliant on, frankly, the amount of space that you might need to grow outdoors mm-hmm. or even in a greenhouse. And so, so we I'm are trying to get a visual of it. So when we you say so, let's because you got lettuce, yeah. So or herbs, right? Yep. So they're stacked. Yep. Are, and each layer has lights. Each layer has um, LED lights, and and each layer is basically has its e- individual grow position or tray. They mm-hmm. can grow any one of the products that you see here mm-hmm. next to each other. Okay. And so um, what we're but doing is- they are is, grown in soil. They're grown hydroponically. They are grown yep. hydroponically. Okay. So we use hydroponics where basically the, um, the, the seeds are planted in a grow medium, um, the roots are nested in the water, mm-hmm. and that's where they get their nutrients. 
nutrients. Okay. The roots and the plants themselves actually never come into contact with the water or, or the nutrient mix. And so one of the benefits of that... Wait, how does that work? Um, uh, because we're not irrigating like you would conventionally, right. which is one of the primary roots of pathogen exposure out mm-hmm. west, mm-hmm. a lot of the irrigation water that's used could be contaminated with E. coli or salmonella or other things. Oh, sure. That's how it gets on your product. In, there's other ways through contamination of uh, processing and things sure. like that. Uh, but that's the primary way uh, that food safety risks are, are kind of originated with, with regards to leafy greens. Mm-hmm. We've eliminated by that by only, uh, you know, giving our crops the water through the roots and okay. having them never come into contact with that nutrient mix. And so one of the benefits on a consumer level mm-hmm. is that we actually have a no need to wash label because our crops never come into contact with anything until they're harvested and put in, in, a, in a clamshell. Right. You don't have to wash the product. So from a consumer, not only is this a safer product because mm-hmm. it doesn't have any of those outdoor risks, um, but you don't need to wash it. So when you think about things like cilantro or parsley mm-hmm. or even, you know, mixed greens, not having to mix your salad or wash your salad before you eat it right. is a huge advantage for the consumer. Absolutely. But let's talk about a little bit how Bowery got started in it. Yeah. Was vertical farming just taking off then? And, you know, when I think of vertical farming, I think of like those... Um, those stands you can get like, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. what are they like called? towers like almost. Yeah, yeah, that's like yep. what's in my head. But yeah. clearly you would need so many of them. So this sounds totally different. Um, it's a little different in mm-hmm. that, um, but I think at its, at its uh, core, one of the benefits behind vertical farming is it's really modular. And mm-hmm. everyone in the industry is doing it a little bit differently. You okay. do have folks who are, you know, stacking their crops uh, vertically. Mm-hmm. Um, ours are in trays, and then each one of those trays is on different levels. And so you could stack your crops dozens of levels high if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. It's really about what your unit economics are and what you're growing and for who. Okay, so let's talk about how did Bowery come up with their process and what they wanted to grow first. How did that come together? So early on, um, the leadership at Bowery and the chief science officer, our, our CEO, realized that technology was going to be the enabling factor in this industry really thriving. Okay. And so we have a proprietary end-to-end technology all run through the Bowery operating system mm-hmm. that uses a combination of different technologies like vision sensors, automation, robotics, machine learning. Mm to basically um, orchestrate kind of three-dimensional chess within the grow room of our farm. Okay. And so when you are driving past the Bowery Farm just north of Baltimore, Mm -hmm. you know, it could look like any other warehouse to you. Um, But inside it is the complete fresh food supply chain from seeding to growing to processing to harvesting and then everything that goes to the retailer. Let's talk. So while it's growing and it's being cared for, what is the farming process? How do you go to collecting it? Are there, how is it all done? Like walk us through it. So this is where um, the technology and the automation really come in. We know that uh, growing crops outdoors is so dependent on seasonality. Sure. But when you remove that by growing things indoors and control everything from the light to the pH to the temperature, Mm -hmm. that you can basically grow food all year round, independent of weather and seasonality, which is important for a lot of reasons. One of which is consumers want strawberries and fresh produce all year round. Right. And, um, And right now that's being met by either farming in the desert 
or, or farming, farming in other countries. In other countries. Yeah. Right. I mean, you know, I think of um, Romaine specifically uh-huh. yep. because there's been several recalls. Yes. For romaine, yeah. um, with E. coli, yep. um, and some other vegetables out there that have been recalled. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, I think we're so spoiled in this country because yeah. you walk into a grocery store and when you walk into the, um, produce aisle, which you always walk into first, yep. you know, your, your eyes are assaulted with a glut of, you know, 18 different apples and nine different pears and um, all these different lettuces and all these, you know, herbs and then broccolis and color. Like you're, you, yeah. you see so much yep. that you really, and it's, you know, displayed beautifully and the colors, you know, it's all to attract yeah. the eye um, and trick the brain a little bit because it looks gorgeous yeah. and it looks fresh and it looks beautiful, but so much of it is, can be dangerous. You know, depend like you have to be a really savvy shopper. You do. And um and I think, you know, look, every farmer that I've ever spoken to mm-hmm. takes food safety incredibly carefully. Of course. And um and I know the industry, you know, more broadly has been taking steps in recent years to really level up its game with regards to food safety. We mm-hmm. know it's a pre-competitive issue that matters to everybody. Yes. Whether you're indoor or outdoor. We all need to do more to address food safety and mitigate any of those risks. Mm-hmm. With that said, there are unique risks that outdoor growers have to deal with yep. that we don't because of how we're growing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the value proposition, not just for us, but for our customer. Okay. Is um, by removing any of those outdoor threats, whether it be uh, the you know irrigation water or other contaminants, um, we just grow protected produce mm-hmm. and we don't have to use pesticides. That's all a really big benefit for the consumer and sure. something that in the marketplace we're seeing a lot more of. Con- customers want that fresh, local, pesticide-free produce. Well, I think it's, the local is the interesting part. Yeah. You know, like I think of like my farmer's market, yeah. which I go to every, you know, Sunday. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that there is, you know, for a while, like 15 years ago, mm-hmm as organic was becoming a bigger marketing term and then local was becoming a marketing term. And it was like, okay, so if I had to choose between local and organic, Mm -hmm. what's the priority? And the thought process then was, well, if you're buying from a local farmer, even if they're not organic, because maybe they can't get the, you know, it's such a a pain in the neck to get, you know, accreditation and it costs money and yada, yada, yada. And, you know, farming is not a lucrative business. Um, for a small farmer. Yes, for sure. So, um, you know, you're better off buying local. So now with what you guys are doing and the ability to open, I guess, really anywhere, the question is, is so you can be local and you already, you're naturally organic, right? Um, yes. You know, I think, um, we can, we can really amplify and build resilience into local and regional food systems in a Mm -hmm. way that previously you know, it was very dependent on seasonality. Right. And um, and again, going back to what the consumer wants, they want local fresh produce all year round. Mm-hmm. Um, and they want that. And I think our retail partners want that surety of supply. We've seen as a result of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, unprecedented supply chain constraints. I know, I know. And, um, and that has tremendous ripple effects. But, um, you know, we see it when there's trucker protests on the border you mm-hmm. never know what those what those impacts are going to mean at your local grocery store i know i mean i 
literally a couple of weeks ago, I was in a grocery store that will remain unnamed, and there were rows yeah. that were just empty. I was like, um, was there a, a snowstorm alert? Like, what right. yeah. What yeah. did I miss? Yeah. And they were like, no, I mean, the well, trucks just didn't come. And I was like, I don't recall this happening before, yeah. but it just, it happens. It's just happening more often now. And and I think the snowstorm analogy is a good one because usually it's, oh, especially in the DC area, right. there's this, there's like two inches are called for and, oh my and God. store and shelves are bare. Totally. Uh, but now it's, there's a snowstorm out West right. and that means that we don't, can't harvest the crops right. or, um, or the trucks can't or make the, it. The yeah, drivers exactly. aren't traveling or it. These, these sorts of things have really changed everything. So now when it comes to where Bowery is now, yeah. what's like, what's the plan with like, so let's talk about, so you have all these different products. Let's yep. talk about the kind of products you have, but then I kind of want to know like what the plan is. Do you plan to open nationally? Are you trying to create relationships within communities yeah. to be a part of the community so that you have really you have the the ability to have great social impact, but that can't just all happen in the warehouse. Right. Do you know what I mean? How do you do that on the ground? Yeah. All right. So going back to the introduction of Bowery. Yes. So, uh, so um, founded in 2015, we sell through over 1,400 retail doors and okay. e-commerce. Nationally. Um, yes. Predominantly in the uh, mid-Atlantic and the Northeast. Okay. Although we're expanding our footprint. So we've got... Um, commercial farms in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Maryland. Mm. We're opening farms this year in Arlington, Texas, and Locust Grove, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. Okay. And so, um, you know, I think following the major metropolitan cities, mm -hmm. um, you know, we know that uh, a vast majority of eaters don't live where food is grown. Right. And so if we can shorten that supply chain mm -hmm. and grow food close to where people live, um, that that's a win-win for everybody. Well, that's also, I mean, we touched on climate change and yeah. farming, but that changes your footprint, right? For sure. yeah. If you don't have to, you know, if right now you're getting lettuces from Arizona and they yep. got to be trucked all, or trained yeah. all the way across the country to get to my table, yeah. then that's a lot. Well, of pressure on the climate. For sure. It's a lot of pressure on the land, on the water, mm -hmm. on infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, our most recent farm we opened in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania last mm -hmm. May. By Lehigh University. Um, sits on a former Bethlehem steel brownfield site. Mm. And so we're actually using non-arable land to grow food all year round. Right. And so you're not building warehouses. You're taking over we're taking spaces over, that already existed. And, and frankly, a, a place like where we are operating in Bethlehem could never be farmed. Sure. And, and, um, one of the advantages. Now I'm singing like the Billy Joel Allentown song, like yes. in my head, cause yeah. that's, that's what I think of, yeah. you know, at yeah. Lehigh. I mean, at uh, Bethlehem. Um, <laughs> and, and so by stacking our crops from floor to ceiling, we are able to be well over a hundred times more productive on the same square foot of land as a traditional farm would be, mm -hmm. um, which means not only are we hugely efficient with space, but also if we grow more food indoors right. very efficiently, think about the land space that we could conserve outdoors for planting trees. Parkland. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So um, actually, this can be a net benefit for the climate because we're not depleting water resources in a place that's, you know, under a mega drought warning. Right. But instead, growing food an hour and a half from New York City mm -hmm. um, and repurposing non-arable land that, frankly, could not have been farmed otherwise. So once the product is farmed, yep. 
and collected. Is it packaged there? Is everything done right everything there? Everything is done under one roof. Okay. So uh, the product will move from the grow room um, uh, through harvesting into mm-hmm. the uh, uh, packaging room where it gets processed, packed into our clamshells, mm-hmm. put on the loading dock, and a retailer will come pick it up You know, that day even mm-hmm. or the next day. And it could be on your store shelf within a day or two. It's amazing. It, um, it really is reinventing that fresh food supply chain mm-hmm. to be – simpler and um and then you know i I mentioned vastly more sustainable we use well over 90 percent less water than outdoor farms would use to grow the same type of crop interesting and so we think of climate change and climate change is the existential threat that we all need to worry about Mm -hmm. water is is right up there and and they're in their yeah for sure they're they're, yes inextricably linked and um and we know that agriculture uses, especially out west, 80 to 90% of our freshwater use, uh, resources right. go to agriculture. And so if we can not only farm more sustainably, but farm in places where there is water resource and mm-hmm. use that water much more efficiently, that's a huge win for the environment. So right now you guys are doing lettuces. You've Primarily, got a- yeah. So you see- um, And herbs. You've got basil- um, and you've basil, got- cilantro, and parsley. Um, we we have seventeen skews, so okay. primarily leafy greens, salad mixes, dark leafy greens like baby kale. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, last fall, we just uh, released three new salad kits. Okay. So um, as I'm sure you've seen when you go into the grocery store, huge booming aspect. Right, because people 20- just want to take it and people make want it. that grab and go option. Yes. And um and so we're really excited about our salad kit offerings. Mm-hmm. Um and. Uh, and, you know, I think one of the differentiators, in addition to being plant forward and great tasting, mm-hmm. is it highlights crispy leaf, which is, uh, we often say, our most forkable green. Okay. But it is, um, it is the perfect kind of indoor version of iceberg. Crispy, flavorful, crunchy, and not necessarily the same type of um, fibrous product you might get in another salad kit. Well, and also, right, because one of my biggest complaints about bagged lettuce is... It's forkability. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. funny that you say that, but yeah. it's one of the, if I go to a restaurant of a certain yep. uh, socioeconomic level and there's yeah. a salad on the menu, I ask what kind of lettuce it is. Yeah. Because that like mescaline greens that was really big like 20 years uh-huh. ago, like you can't stick a fork in it and yeah. it has no texture and it has no flavor yeah. at all. Yeah. Like I'm like, just throw it away. Like don't even bother. And flavor And is it has it. no nutritional value. Like there's nothing in that lettuce. Well, nothing. Uh, one stat to throw your way oh, is according to USDA, about 45% of the nutritional value of food is lost because of long haul transportation. Sure. And so again, to your point earlier, when all of our food is coming either from across the country or potentially halfway around the globe, right. think about the nutritional quality that's diminishing as a result of that. Right. Um, but going back to flavor and taste, we have um, enjoyed... We, we have a number of great partners, including Jose Andres, Tom mm-hmm. Clicchio, who are investors in Bowery. One of the things well, they- Well, what do they bring to the table? I mean, other than money as investors and obviously their uh, their level of yeah. um, their platforms yeah. uh, to talk about what you're doing, but are they? do they have feedback? Are they like, no, you should be doing this or this doesn't have this kind of quality? Like what, what else are they bringing to the table? Uh, anyone that's ever met both Tom and Jose I know mean, they, that they, they, they never hold back on their no, feedback, not at all. Right. Uh, both on camera and off. Mm-hmm. Um, they're always sharing ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things, 
uh, the point that I bring up is that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, hydroponic greens were watery, flavorless. Well, I was thinking of hydroponic tomatoes. Yeah. But, but it, there's been a huge shift in there's, that kind of farming as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the exciting things about this industry right now, both indoor farming and then vertical farming specifically, is when you think about why we breed crops outdoors, it's to withstand pests or be drought resistant or mm -hmm. other things. But when you don't have to worry about those things, you can actually now breed for flavor and quality and mm. unique profiles. Sure. And and so one of the things, and we've got behind me, uh, mustard frills, which mm -hmm. is our um, uh, uh, very uh, spicy uh, mustard green yep. that is the type of thing that you'd get at the farmer's market maybe that two weeks. Right. But now you can get it all year round. Well, you know, what I was thinking about is, you know, years ago, as these small farms were starting up to bring back, you know, sort of the culture of yeah. real farming, yeah. the relationships that they would have with the chefs in yep. the area. And that's why, you know, we have all these heirloom greens sort of back because people are bringing back yeah. these products yeah. that, you know, kind of got lost with time because mm -hmm. they couldn't be mass produced or they were only available for two weeks. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Whether it's a potato or an onion or a mushroom or a, um, or a lettuce, yeah. et cetera. Even yeah. heirloom, different apples. You know, yep. you go to the store now for when I was growing up, there were like three apples, right? Yes. Maybe yeah. four. Now there's like 15 varieties. I yep. mean, I've never even heard of some of them, but they, it is interesting what that looks like yeah. when people are like, no, we can do this. The customer has certainly changed. And mm -hmm. I think um, social media is driving that a little bit. People want to see cool food. I, I think it's a little before social media. Yeah. Honestly, I hate to give credit to the Food Network yeah. because it's not what it once was. But I think when food first yeah. appeared yeah. on TV, it leveled the playing field right and all of a sudden good food wasn't just for the rich no and more people saw how to cook food and um had and it could be entertaining yes and it could be that it could be so much more yeah and i think it changed a it changed a generation of people who now you have a much educated consumer, regardless of their socioeconomics yes yeah. uh not all socioeconomics but you know you know, good food is much more attainable now. It's attainable. Because you can make it at home. Right. Um, and people also now know they can ask for it. Yeah. And know that they should have better food. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then there's social media now. But I think it really all started. Yeah. No, that's a great know, point. You know, with the Food Network yeah. and the kind of shows they had initially before the competitions and all that bullshit. Yeah. Like, they were really... They had entertaining people on the show who really showed the pleasure yeah. of food. Yeah. And I think when you see that, you're like, yeah, I want that. Mm -hmm. I want that too. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And, um, and we're start we see it reflected on menus. Mm -hmm. Obviously, culinary times always are changing. Right. Um, and you're the real expert here, but you know, we, we're that hyper local, uh, flavor, different textures. Like mm -hmm. we're seeing that reflected on menus and food service is a new and expanding part of our business. We're primarily retail at the moment. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that's a huge opportunity. I do too. And then, um, and then, you know, frankly, now that things are changing after the pandemic and, mm -hmm. um, you know, people are back at work. They want that healthy grab and go option. Right. And so the salad kits are really exciting because we don't just want to 
a boring thing anymore. We want something that's going to spice it up a little right. bit. Right. No, I do get that. Okay. So you have your lettuces. Yep. But now you guys are doing strawberries? Strawberries. Okay. Yeah. So uh, last year, uh, we unveiled, uh, we launched strawberries, grow them at our um, one of our Kearney farms in, in New Jersey. Okay. Um, a limited a release. Farm? Oh, it's in Kearney, New Jersey. Oh, Kearney. Yeah. Not a Kearney farm. I was like, the what is Kearney a farm? farm? What does that even mean? Okay, uh, go just ahead. Just outside of Newark. So <laughs> yes. uh, 15 minutes from the city. I know where Kearney is. I grew up in New Jersey. I know where it is. Um, so... Uh, yeah, strawberries and fruiting crops are the next frontier. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Like, how do we go? Lettuces are great. Yep. And it's, it's sort of this, it's the starting drug, right? Yeah. This is where it starts. Yeah. And now you guys are doing strawberries, which again, like we said in the beginning of the show, super fragile. We're talking about super fragile yes. products. Yep. But how can you take this kind of vertical farming and incorporate the heart of your vegetables? Yes. We're working on it. Are you? So stay tuned. Okay. But I think back to the point earlier about strawberries, um, strawberries are really bred to be able to withstand long haul transportation. And okay. so they're bred to be hardy. And that's why most of the strawberries we eat are really tough and hard. And, right. not, and they're not like that perfect juicy strawberry at the farmer's market. they have no market. flavor. Yeah. I mean, some, they're red. Yes. They're but that really, doesn't always... really red. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. it doesn't mean that they're really tasty. Yes. And mm-hmm. so... Um, uh, there are two reasons that I joined Bowery. One, I firmly believe in what the company is doing and its mission, both mm-hmm. to democratize access to fresh food and address the, you know, sustainability challenges we, we need to address in agriculture. Mm-hmm. But the other is the product is just amazing. Right. And, uh, my interview, my final interview, I came home. It was a snowy day in New Jersey, mm-hmm. came home with basil and strawberries. And my wife and I made fresh pesto. And we ate strawberries in the height of winter. Right. And um, and that was, you know, for me, the turning point. Okay. And I think everyone wants that. Yes. And so how can we, um, how can we as an industry grow to meet that growing consumer demand for fresh, local, affordable produce? And so as we grow and scale, I think we're going to continue to do that. But I guess the real question is, is how do you educate? Yeah. Where's the education component for the general public to understand the farming practices and why these farming practices are so much better as you guys delve into more products yep. than just lettuce and try to reach out to a, a greater clientele. And then on that, how do you go about, where's your social impact? How do you go about getting access to those who I mean, those of us who shop at the farmer's markets and the Whole Foods and et cetera, or Dawson's or any of these places, like we can shop with our dollars, right? I mean, we're in a, we're very grateful to be able to do that. But when we talk about those who do not have that, you know, if you want to go into Ward 7 or Ward 8 here where there's no grocery stores, really. So how, where are you guys on that? So, um, you know, democratizing access to healthy food is one of the cornerstones of what we do. Okay. And everywhere we have a farm, we partner with community organizations or like-minded businesses to mm-hmm. help address a lot of those systemic challenges that we face. Okay. Here in DC, we work with an organization called DC Central Kitchen. Everybody knows DC Central Kitchen. Uh, love them. They're, uh, they do so much amazing work. One of the amazing things they do is they um, run and manage uh, over 55 
um, I think about 55 healthy corner stores mm-hmm. across the country or across the city, primarily Ward 7 and 8. Yes. And, um, and so, uh, early on, Bowery identified DC Central Kitchen as a, as a unique partner in mm-hmm. making sure that not only can you buy our great produce at everywhere from Dawson's to right. Whole Foods and Walmart and independent Safeway Giant, but it should be available in, in communities that might not have access. Right. And so um, uh, in the fall, when we announced salad kits, we also expanded our partnership to make sure that our salad kits would also be offered at, um, at through the Healthy Corners Initiative. That's amazing. And uh, one of the unique aspects, so we sell our produce for below wholesale price, so reduce the price for DC Central Kitchen. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a uh, Snap or WIC participant can further reduce that price at uh, the point of sale, mm. and um, you know it's a it's a great model for how we could think about getting healthy, fresh food into more mouths across the country for communities where access remains a big challenge. No, that makes sense. After the show, I want to talk about food rescue with you. I don't yeah. know if you're familiar with them. Um, but we can, we can talk about that yeah. afterwards. They may be another partner. They do work with DC Central Kitchen, yeah. but they're, they're doing really incredible things. Um, I'm familiar. And okay. I think, um, uh, we're, we're so excited about the attention that I think rescue and addressing wasted food, right. um, is getting, mm-hmm. um, we were a part of a big, um, collaborative, uh, uh, um, approach between private sector, nonprofit, mm-hmm. Tom Colicchio was involved to mm-hmm. pass the Food Donation Improvement Act, a bill that was passed and signed into law in December okay. to really help reduce the um, the uh, paper, legal, yeah, the legal liability yes. that was preventing a lot of companies. This wasn't the case for Bowery. We were donating our produce anyways. Right. But there are a lot of companies that really fear that legal issue. Well, so, you know, we talked about earlier about food that could be unsafe. Yep. Which is why some of these legal yeah. loopholes are put, not legal loopholes, these legal issues, I guess the laws are put in place, but it was making re- food that could be repurposed. Yeah. It was just. It was too onerous. And, right. It was and, just, it, but it was also such a waste. Yeah. Like it was so black and white. Yeah. Instead of giving it shades of gray. And listen, you don't want anybody to get sick. Yeah. I'm with you on that. Yeah. But you know, if you have a, a huge event and there's all this food and it doesn't get eaten. The fact that you couldn't just box it up and bring it to a DC central kitchen or Martha's table or yep. someplace else yeah. where they could repurpose it and get it into the mouths of people who need it. I mean, yeah. there's just too much f- food in this country. There's too like, much food and there are too many ways. hungry I know. families and, and especially families with children. Uh-huh. Um, so I think we have, we've long worked with, Feeding America partners. Mm-hmm. Um, we work at the Second Harvest um, Food Bank in the Lehigh Valley with okay. in our Bethlehem farm, um, uh, and uh, I could rattle on all right. of our partners. But sure. everywhere we have a farm, we have both a you know donation strategy to ensure that we're just donating certain amounts of our product, mm-hmm. but also working to ensure that hey, if a retailer changed up an order at the last minute and suddenly they wanted Butterhead and not baby kale, right. we can make sure that that good product doesn't go to waste. Right. And um, and I think that that's um, a unique opportunity when you're growing food using technology the way we are is mm-hmm. we have the ability to forecast within our system what a retailer wants and then change our seating depending on what they're going to need in 30 days. Mm. Um, but it also means that we can pivot in real time and make sure that no good food ever goes to waste. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, all all food companies have a responsibility to do that. Well, I I obviously agree wholeheartedly on that. I mean, I but just, it's a challenge. It is a challenge. Yeah. it is, and finding that balance is not 
easy. Yeah. So let's just, we have a couple minutes left. Let's talk about the food policy work that you are doing yeah. because there is constantly things coming up in Congress. What are your big sort of sticky wheels at the moment? So um, as some of your listeners might know, every five years, the farm bill gets reauthorized. Mm -hmm. Very top of mind uh, as it, it will be reauthorized this year, or at least we're expecting it to. So 2023. 2023. And, um, and so there are a couple core objectives we'd love to see. Okay. I think one of which is we know that um, food insecurity is a big challenge. And so mm -hmm. we partner with a lot of organizations and actually use our voice to, to lend support towards increasing nutrition incentive programs in SNAP, mm -hmm. helping um, you know vulnerable populations have access to and reducing barriers to access for fresh produce. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a real big opportunity in the Farm Bill is to increase nutrition incentives. Okay. One of the things that we heard in the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health last fall, one out of 10 Americans eat their suggested amounts of fresh fruits and vegetables, <laughs> which is staggering. Insane. Yeah. Um, but folks who are on um, SNAP and participating in the Nutrition Incentives Program mm -hmm. eat almost double the amount of fresh fruits and vegetables huh. that the average American does. And so it's a really great indicator that nutrition incentive programs work, work. and can be real. And when you think about produce prescriptions, they can have a real big impact on reducing diet-related disease. Well, without a doubt. I mean, listen, this takes us off a little bit, but when you think of um, – SNAP and WIC yeah. being available, that you could use those dollars at farmer's markets. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like Double they, up bucks. Right. Yeah. And now they're starting to talk about programs at universities, yeah. you know, where the kids have their swipe cards because yep. they talk about college kids who And hunger is hunger. one of those silent challenges on, on know, college campuses. Is, again, crazy. Yeah. But um, so now they're talking about being able to swipe yeah. this, at these local farmer's markets yeah. so that the kids can have access, yeah. not just to the food that's being served in the commissary yeah. or the cafeteria, but the food to food, you know, and it's also, it's all good because it's local purveyors, it's yep. local farmers. Yeah. I mean, and I just feel like that dialogue yeah. is such an incredible way to, ed again, you want an educated consumer, right. you got to get them when they're young and yeah. the more that they can hear and learn and see and taste, yeah. the more active they will be. Yeah. You know? For sure. Um, and then one of the other, uh, I think, big themes in the Farm Bill mm -hmm. is innovation. Hmm. Um, uh, the chairman of the House Agriculture Committee, G.T. Thompson, Republican from Pennsylvania, said that he wants science, technology, and innovation to be ingrained in every title of the Farm Bill. Okay. And so um, when you think about science, technology, and innovation, there's nothing that defines that more than what vertical farming. I know. So what's... What about those big farmers who, I, they must be fighting that. I would assume their lobby is like, uh, no. Um, so interestingly are enough. Ca are they catching up? We, I work really closely with the outdoor growers, both mm -hmm. directly as well as through various trade associations. Um, and I think we all recognize that technology and innovation is going to be needed mm -hmm. to solve our global challenges. Sure. And we're not going to be able to grow everything indoors, at least not in the short term. And we know that, frankly, there are no silver bullets. And mm -hmm. so... For, so it has to be a mix. It has to be a mix. Sure. And so I think one of the things that we're encouraging the next Farm Bill to do is how can we help deploy innovation both indoors as well as in the field mm. so we use fewer pesticides, we use less water, we farm more efficiently? Mm -hmm. Because I think this is really a, and I hate to use it, the metaphor in a climate change environment, but a rising tides lift all boats 
kind of thing. I agree. That um, we need more innovation in the field and indoors to address the systemic challenges we face. And so um, both uh, using, you know, our, our, our platform, um, working through trade associations, and then working through the CEA Alliance, the trade association for indoor farming companies, mm-hmm. we're educating members of Congress about what we're doing, what the barriers are, and, and what the opportunities are. But when you think about semiconductors, renewable energy, electric vehicles, we know that the federal government can really step change industries. Mm-hmm. And um, what is more important than our food? Right. And we know that food security is national security. Mm-hmm. So how can this next farm bill really invest in innovation that secures our food future? Well, it has to. Yeah. Because with all the climate issues, the shortages that we were talking about, yeah. it has to, it, you have to address it at its source. Yeah. And once those changes are in place, they ha- we have to be able to evolve with where we are right now. We can't do things yeah. like we have in the past. Uh, so that's, it is exciting. At least they're thinking correctly about it. They are. And I think this farm bill is really going to set the course for how well we do for the next five years, Ooh. which is scary. But I think it's a big opportunity. And mm-hmm. so I think, um, you know, we know the challenge is big. The opportunity is even bigger. I love it. And so how can we seize the moment and um, and really, you know, reshape how we grow food in this country and, frankly, around the world? Right. Because hopefully one day it is everywhere. Like I think of, you know, arid nations in Africa that, yeah. you know, have terrible food shortages. When you think about, you know, especially areas of the Middle East, mm-hmm. um, very dependent on imports, and yes. that was magnified during the pandemic, um, you know, everywhere we know that food sovereignty and food security is top of mind. Mm-hmm. What we're doing in vertical farming and indoor farming can be applied anywhere. Right. And and frankly, might be even more advantageous for arid countries. Of course. And who are really, who really need to secure their food security, but also might not have the same water resources that other mm-hmm. countries do, or might not have the same climate. Um, so I think there's a big role to play in addressing both U.S. food security as well as global food security. Great. Okay. Tell everybody, please, where we can find you and Bowery, either on Instagram or how we can get more information if we need to. Uh, so uh, you can find Bowery on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, social media. We're everywhere. everywhere. Um, uh, if you're in the Mid-Atlantic or the Northeast, you can find us Whole Foods, Amazon, Giant, mm-hmm. Safeway, um, Walmart, mm-hmm. Independence, um, you know, and if you're not somewhere, ask for it. Right. Um, I think, and then uh, we'll see you in the Southeast and the Southwest soon. I can't wait. Okay. It's so great talking to you. Yeah, you it's too. really interesting. And I mean, clearly you guys are innovators. And but you're making other people catch up, which I just love. Uh, we're trying. It's an exciting time. It is exciting. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Um, just a couple things. Everything you heard here today will be on the list. Are you on it.com? Of course, you want to follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Now you can watch this on YouTube, which is why I'm looking at you while I'm talking to you. So if you have questions on any of the podcast channels or on uh, YouTube or on on Instagram, just send us a question. I'm happy to answer them or bring in Colin and we can answer them together. Please subscribe. And uh, hey, you just heard about all these shortages out there. So everybody, please remember, take your kindness pills when you go out and just 
try to be kind to one another and to your servers and to everybody else because uh, it's rough out there. So thank you again for joining us and have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.